uh, you may remain seated. I will join you. And I want to add my welcome to worship at Bethel Bible Church in downtown Tyler, Texas. My name is Eric Barton, and as Mike has already said, we get to be one of the pastors down here at Bethel. And I want to welcome you and draw special attention to one of the things that Mike mentioned that is also in our online QR code access bulletin, that on September 26th, we will do believer's baptism in this very room. If you've never been baptized, or perhaps you were baptized in a different tradition, a different experience, but you really feel like you've never been properly identified with the covenant community through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, symbolically initiated into the covenant community of Christ, then we would love to talk with you about that. So that is September 26th, about a month away We'll do it in this very room. It's always an exciting time for us logistically to watch our deacons fill up this massive trough of water and then somehow try to position it properly so that it doesn't fall through two floors of building and wipe out the city block. So far, so good. Praise God. So we want to invite you with all confidence to be a part of that if you never have. Now, speaking of baptism and therefore at larger conversation, the church, who are we? What are we doing here? In the month of August, we like to sort of pull back a little bit. And for those of you who have not been coming to Bethel since 1982, perhaps you're visiting, perhaps you've only heard this once or twice, we'd like to remind our folks or those who are visiting who we are, what we're doing here, what is our understanding and therefore our execution of church, our ecclesiology, you might say. And it starts with this. We believe that the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. That's really important. That definition is chosen word for word very purposefully. The church is not an Old Testament thing where we're trying to adhere to the law of Moses, where we're asking you to schlep up all of your sin to Mount Sinai only to see it strengthened and grow. No, it's all about the finished work of Christ. The church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. Jesus inaugurates and initiates the new covenant. He sends his promised Holy Spirit to indwell eternally every believer at new birth. And that community of people who are indwelled by the Spirit of God is what we call the church. Now, if that's true, and it is, so then what does the church actually do? What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church, precisely what we're trying to accomplish on all three floors and all of our extended ministries here, there, and everywhere is to make disciples of Jesus. That's it. It's a replication, reproduction ministry to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus. Full stop, that's what we're about. And so we have all these different ministries but our ministries are pretty ruthlessly focused on the mission of the church. Our ministries are simply the way we accomplish our mission. So there's a lot of great ministerial opportunities and avenues out there. We only pursue them if they help us to accomplish our mission, which is to make disciples of Jesus because the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. You see, repetition is the mother of learning. And so we really want to birth some knowledge about who we are as a church. So we have the essence of the church, the mission of the church, the ministries of the church, how the mission gets done. And then there's the gifts of the church. This is where it gets granular. The gifts of the church are simply how you, all of you, execute and accomplish the ministries so that the mission is accomplished because of what the church is. That's how we as a church are organized. Now we have a vision for what we're supposed to be about specifically and distinctly as Bethel here in the downtown campus of Tyler, Texas, in East Texas. When we say vision, what we essentially mean is it's what we're doing no matter what we're doing. 
Whether we're having a men's group, whether we're having a worship service, whether we're having a service project, a short-term mission trip, our vision is what Bethel is intentionally doing no matter what we're doing. From a covered dish to childcare to a youth group meeting, whatever it might be. And so we want to be categorized down into three broad categories. We always want to be intentionally, deliberately about growing communities. The New Testament command to one another is repeated 47 times like a verb. You are to actively, intentionally, deliberately, diligently one another. We want to do that in the groups that we have in fellowship in our church, but also have that spread to the outside of our church. So growing communities, building leaders, raising up people who are going to raise up people who are going to raise up people because the church is comprised of these royal priests who go and do like Jesus did. And so we want to be very intentional about raising them up. And then we want to be people who are living generously, who are characterized by giving their lives away. We have all that we need in Christ, the scriptures say. And so we are unleashed in joy because of our fulfillment to give our own lives away. So how do we actually do that in our context? What is our actual practical, tactical strategy? It comes down to three basic points. The first and foremost, because of our adherence doctrinally to the inerrancy, the inspiration, the authority, the sufficiency of God's word, we do expository preaching and teaching. That means we want to teach preach and convey the text in its context. There is no meaning apart from context. And so it sort of sets the stage for everything we do. Thus says the Lord in our groups, in our worship services, and all that we do, we teach the word of God, expository preaching. Then we've organized around a multi-site model. Presently, Bethel enjoys and experiences five campuses around East Texas where we've sort of decided we're going to commute to the communities where we can have new covenant communities of the Spirit, not inviting everyone to come into one massive, monolithic megastructure. We've sort of decentralized and dispersed. That's one of our strategies. So expository teaching, a multi-site model, and then intentional missions. And within missions, we don't give to a massive cooperative program. We sponsor very specifically, very intelligently, very ruthlessly, four different categories of mission. We care intensely about unreached people groups. We care about church planting. We care about international students, those who come to Tyler and other places in Texas and all over the country. We want to give them the gospel, equip them to be givers of the gospel as they go back to their native lands. And then fourth, we want to be all about local generosity. You heard uh, someone mention earlier this morning, we're still taking uh, bids in our silent auction that will support a ministry in town called For the Silent. We love these folks. We've been partnering with them for about 13, 14 years. That's a local generosity initiative. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's Bethel. At this point, when I have a conversation with someone like this, they'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. But what about this, that, and the other? And I'll say, thanks for the question. Great question. If the Lord's burdened you for that ministry, we want to find that flicker and fan it to flame so long as it actually helps us accomplish our mission to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ because the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. Now then, To that end, one of the things that we get to do every year, speaking of building leaders, is we get to identify some folks that the congregation, our trustee elders, and we believe the Lord has identified to be installed in a specific office of service for the church in general and for this campus in particular. This year, we're going to be installing two deacons who've already been... uh, elected and affirmed by the trustee elders and our congregation. And so I want to read a little bit of this because it's a wonderful formalized thing that we do as a church and a campus. 
I think it was about three weeks ago, we did vote to affirm these men who'd been nominated to serve as deacons here at Bethel. And we did that for all of our five Bethel campuses. Today, I want to present these men to you, commission them for service, and pray for them. So I'm going to invite Tony Bassanio and Scott McDaniel, if you guys would please come forward. Here in a moment, I'm going to uh, rouse our other deacons and elders from their slumber and ask them to come up forward as well. But for now, just Tony and Scott. Got Scott McDaniel over here. Scott is married to Holly, who is right back there. And candidly, Holly's the reason you won, okay? And Tony's married to Dottie, and quite honestly, it's because of Dottie as well. But we love Tony. We love Scott. They're all ready, loving, leading, guiding, and guarding God's people. They're already serving kicking up the dust as they do the ministries of this campus such that the word of God could be distributed. Jesus talked about true leadership when he said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These men have been set aside to provide service, protection, and leadership to us as a church. Now for you guys, I have six questions I'm going to ask you. I would like for after each question, if you would respond by saying, I do. This is not a marital thing, relax. But it is a covenantal thing. And so we do take it seriously. Do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God and totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the final and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely affirm the essential doctrines of Bethel Bible Church? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders and deacons in the Lord? Will you be faithful and diligent to endeavor by the grace of God to love and defend the proclamation of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with humility and strength before this congregation? Are you now willing to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the ministry to God's people, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Bethel Bible Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? That I charge you to deacons and all of our deacons to inspire faithful service in our church. Remind us that from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, from Luke 12. Be compassionate to the needy. Hold in trust all sensitive matters confided to you. Call out Mike Hall. At all. No, it doesn't actually say that. I just wanted to throw that out there. Encourage them with words that create hope in their hearts, with deeds that bring joy into their lives. Let your lives be above reproach as you live as examples of Christ Jesus, prepared to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And now to the congregation of this campus on both floors, and perhaps you watching remotely. I have two questions for you. You can, remain, you can remain seated and just answer corporately when I ask these two questions. Do you, the members of Bethel Bible Church, acknowledge and publicly receive these men as deacons, as gifts of Christ to this church? That was not super awesome, but they do. They really, really do. They, mean, they love you guys. It's going to be okay. Second question. Will you love them and pray for them and their families and their ministry and work together with them humbly and cheerfully, that by the grace of God you may accomplish the mission of the church, giving them all due honor and support in their leadership to which the Lord has called them to the glory and honor of God. Yeah. Will, they will. Then my charge back to our congregation of this campus in particular and to all of Bethel in general, I charge you as the people of God to receive these men as Christ's gift to our church. 
Recognize in them the Lord's provision for a healthy congregational life. Hold them in honor. Take their counsels seriously. Respond to them with respect. Accept their help with thanks. Sustain them in prayer and encourage them with your support, especially when they feel the burden of their office, and they will. Acknowledge them as the Lord's servants among you. And so for now, if there are any deacons or elders, or if you've ever been an elder or a deacon at Bethel, I'm going to invite you to come up, please. If Scott, if you'll step up here. Tony, if you'll come up here. I want to ask for you to lay hands on these two guys. Nothing awkward, please. You guys come up here in the front, and these guys will lay hands on you. I'm going to pray, and congregation will ask you to join as well as we pray for these two new deacons. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, our merciful God in heaven, we thank you that you've provided faithful and gifted men to serve as deacons and as also these elders. As these men assume their responsibilities, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit again and again, leading them, endow them with your wisdom and grant them strength. Under their guidance, may our church grow in every spiritual grace, in faith, and in the committed service that proclaims you in the world. Help them to perform their duties with enthusiasm and humility. In their work, grant them a sense of sustained awe, which is rooted in daily adoration of you, their Lord. Through them, may your name be honored and your church be served. Help us as your people to accept them gladly, to encourage them always, and respect them for the sake of your precious Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You may all be seated. Always love to do that. It's a wonderful, humbling time to see how the Lord moves in the lives of households. My charge to them is the charge that we always say to our staff, to our elders, do not overwork, overflow. And you'll have plenty of opportunities to do precisely that. Well, that at long last brings us to our text. Since we do hold to the criticality of expository teaching, it leads us to our text this morning. If you've got your Bible so that we can do some expository preaching, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. About three weeks ago, we began studying the life and the ministry of Jesus, and we opened up Luke chapter 4, where we discovered that Jesus is the man. That is the theme of the gospel of Luke, that Jesus is the man. In fact, the most complete and perfect human that has ever been, and he still is. As he was tempted in the wilderness, we learn that Jesus is the man. And then immediately, Jesus begins to increase, increasingly experience more and more and more resistance. And we learn that Jesus gets it done. We see that Jesus confronts wicked, unclean spirits and disease and the fallenness of humanity because of sin, and that Jesus conquers every form of evil. Now, at long last, that brings us to chapter 5, one of my favorite passages. We're going to go chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. I should mention there's no way I can cover all that exists in these 16 verses, and so every week we also produce a podcast where Matt and I sort of unpack a little bit further, a little bit more deeper detail what's going on with this passage, so I encourage you to check that out. It's called What's the Word? You can find it on SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, uh, probably the TikToks. I don't know what that is. Good luck with that. Luke chapter 5, Luke writes, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is God's word. What do we take away from this? We value so deeply, so preciously here, the gospel, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done to redeem us to himself and to one another. And this story is a perfect foundational basis of the gospel. Let me walk back through this very briefly. Again, I don't have time for all of this, but I want you to see the wonderful narrative as Dr. Luke writes this. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, you might remember again, Jesus has been kicked out of the synagogue in Nazareth. He's relocated his home base to Capernaum on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a freshwater lake. On one occasion, one particular time, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Now that's instructive. Jesus isn't just riffing. Jesus isn't just going off on some thoughts and ideas. He's teaching scripture. He's teaching the Old Testament. And he's bringing to bear that all the Old Testament scriptures prepared for and pointed to him. We know later in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24 as he walks along the road to Emmaus that he tells two disciples that all of the scriptures of the Old Testament were ultimately and actually about him. So we get some sense of what Jesus is doing as he's on the seashore and the people are crushing and crowding and crushing and crowding until he's almost quite literally pushed into the water as he's explaining, oh, you've heard it said. Remember that story with David? You remember that story with Daniel? You remember that story about Ezekiel? It's all pointing to Messiah. And you're seeing him now. And the people were gasping for spirit truth so much that they're pushing him into the water. And so look what happens. He saw two boats by the lake but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets because fishermen, you see, they fish all night because that's when you catch fish. It's not during the day, at night. They've left their boats. They're away from their boats and they're washing their nets. And while they're washing, they're seeing this crowd muster and they're hearing the words of this Jesus who has probably known them and they're hearing what he's saying, but they're washing their notes, their nets a little bit at a distance when all of a sudden, getting into one of the boats, now, when a dude just hops in your boat, you take notice. And when he happens to be, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, and he just gets in your boat, you can just sort of figure that Simon just comes running, nets in it, like, hey, 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 what are you doing with my boat? Not a whole lot of conversation about it. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, it just so happened to be. He asked him to put out a little from the land. Now, you got to remember, Simon, later called Peter, was almost certainly at synagogue in Capernaum because all of the men would certainly have gathered just a week before or so. Simon would have almost certainly been there and saw Jesus have a conversation with a wicked spirit where he just says, hush up, get out. And this is all fulfilled in your hearing. He had heard the stories about this Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. He had almost certainly been home when Jesus comes to his house and heals his very sick mother-in-law. And now this guy's sitting in his boat. 
really an amazing image that, that Luke wants us to have. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. Where has Peter seen this before? That's how you teach in the Jewish culture. You read and then you sit down and you sort of explain and you, you teach from a seated position. Now the Sea of Galilee, this freshwater lake, that part of the, the lake, is all these little zigzaggy coves that make for a perfect acoustic theater. And so Jesus knows this. He's just using the environment. He puts out on the boat, and you can stand or sit in a boat, and with a normal speaking voice, you can be heard all the way up the cove. And so all of these people are listening to Jesus, and Peter is listening to Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? He's giving them the word of God. You've heard it said in this story here. You've heard it said in this story there. I'm telling you, all that you've been longing for, all of your gospel groanings and grumblings that you've been wanting it to happen, it has come. It has come. And the people are famished and they're parched to hear more of this. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your newly cleaned nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master. Now, don't overread that word. It's not Lord. It's a different word. It's sort of like, okay, boss, whatever you say. It's a term of respect, but it's not really. I mean, it's just like I recognize you're kind of in charge right now, but it's not Lord. No, no, that'll come later. Okay, boss, whatever you say, carpenter boy, whatever you say, put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Boss, we toiled all night and took nothing. Don't you know Jesus loves our explanations? Like, no, 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 Jesus, there's something you probably don't know. Let me help you. No, he knows. He knows. He knows. I'm sure Jesus is going, oh, thanks, Simon. I didn't know that, except for I know everything. We took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets because you say so. That's a good practice to follow. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Luke doesn't give you the idea that they fish like I fish, where you put your line in the water, you kick back, you have a sandwich, you tell all your favorite jokes, you're not paying attention, and then maybe if you get lucky, there'll be a slight wiggle on the line. No, 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 no. They threw their nets in, in the middle of the day, which there's no fish at the surface in the height of the day. They don't like the heat. They throw their nets in, and immediately, they don't even get to their first sandwich, and the boat begins to rock. Now, this is amazing. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. It's such a massive amount of fish. Now, I've often wondered when I read a story like this, did Jesus just create all of these fish out of nothing right then? Well, we could have, had that been the leading of the Holy Spirit, he could have. Or did he just summon them? Fish of the sea, to me, to, because he spoke that way apparently. No, he never did. I don't know, or from eternity past, had Jesus purposed some massive migration that would just perfectly arrive at that exact moment? And I don't know, but either way, it's awesome but it's even more awesome than you and I might understand at first reading. See, Jesus is showing us something. Our big idea for today is that Jesus redeems. Jesus redeems. He's the man. Jesus gets it done. He conquers every form of evil, and Jesus redeems. What's going on here? 
Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, it's the first time we're introduced to humanity. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God is speaking apparently to the Godhead in the angelic realm, and he says, let us make man in our image. Do you know the very first thing man is supposed to do? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the very first thing that man is supposed to do is to have dominion over all of the fish in the sea. How's that been going for the last several thousand years? I can't even get my kids to obey me. Fish, and they will have dominion over the fish of the sea. Jesus isn't just helping them catch some fish as a party trick. No, 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 no. He's showing them that he is the recapitulation, the redemption of all that has fallen. Adam was supposed to have had dominion over the fish of the sea, but he rebelled and he felled. But the last Adam, with a flicker of a thought, commands so much fish as the recapitulation and the redemption of man, the most human human of all time, that the boats begin to sink. And it's not just fish. Like, that's a neato trick. No, no, Jesus performed a lot of signs and wonders, but they were always an affirmation of his authority, of his veracity. This is a massive blessing that when Messiah comes and begins to invite you into his midst, there's blessing, there's plenty, there's prosperity. This much fish that would sink two boats was months and months and months and months and months of economic boon caught in 30 minutes. Don't you long for a king, a lord, a ruler, a savior like that? And Jesus is not trying hard. Jesus redeems, and Peter and his partners see this. Watch their response. It's really telling. Beginning in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Oh, not boss. Now he calls him kurios, Lord. Now he knows this, this is creator God who just thinks and swarms of the natural order come to him. Away from me. See, Peter sees Jesus rightly, and so Peter sees Peter rightly. Away from me. I cannot have any place with you. I am sinful. Verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Whoa, Peter, sinner, easy, big fella, easy, buddy. You're not that bad. Sinner, I mean, come on, everybody makes mistakes. Come on, it's going to be okay. Let's go have a bite. No, Jesus doesn't argue with him. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Well, people, anthropos, you will catch people. He doesn't let him off the hook and say, no, you're not a sinner, Peter. Come on, you're pretty good. You just need a little, uh, a little polish and wax. No, Peter, you are a sinner. But from now on, you will be catching people. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, let me just pause for a moment because I've heard Luke 5.11 used with an unnecessary and un, uh, unnatural force that for you to follow Jesus, for you to love Jesus, you've got to leave everything behind. That's not what Luke is doing here. That is not what he is prescribing here. He's talking about the calling of the apostles who would be the foundation of the church who left that vocation to be apostles of Jesus. This is not a formula or a prescription that you have to abandon all of your previous life. That would be an economic catastrophe for our world. 
So please, let's not use that and try to manipulate people. Oh, you used to be a doctor, not anymore. You used to be this, not anymore. Th that's not at all what the text is telling us to do. In fact, more than likely, what God wants is for you to be right where you are, but fully indwelled by his spirit, unleashed by his son, equipped with his word to be you in Christ right where you are. Jesus tells him, Peter, don't be afraid. You're now going to be fishers of men. What kind of men, you might say? <laughs> For that, we have chapter 5, verses 11 to 16. Now, often these passages get split up, and they must not. I get it. It's a different paragraph in your Bible. It's not in Luke's, in Luke's narrative writing. This little vignette, Luke 5, 12 to 16, is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. That is Matthew and Mark and Luke. The whole thing takes maybe 10 minutes or less, but it is so super significant. Let me read it to you very quickly. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, Dr. Luke says. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. You can almost hear the whoosh of the fish filling the net, how quickly that went. And he charged him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray." What's going on here? This is the gospel in a nutshell. It's a very familiar passage that Jesus cleanses, uh, cleanses a leper. In the gospel of Matthew, we hear Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, this sort of new Torah. Oh, you thought that righteousness looked like this from Torah? Jesus ratchets it up exponentially. He says, oh, it's actually way more difficult than you thought. You've heard it said, do not kill. But I tell you, if you think someone's a fool, you've committed murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at another person adulterously, you've broken the law. Jesus takes Torah and he exponentially increases it. And so you read the Sermon on the Mount and really you go, oh, there's no way I could ever do this. To which Jesus says, right. And so the very first person you encounter in the Gospel of Matthew after the Sermon on the Mount, it's this leper. He says, I can't do any of that stuff. I can't do anything, period. But you can make me clean. And Jesus says, Yahtzee. That's a Yiddish translation that means Yahtzee. This guy gets it. And Jesus touches him and he's clean. Luke's telling this in a slightly different way. While Jesus is still up in the northern part of the Galilee, somewhere near Capernaum, listen to how Luke tells this story. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. While Jesus is in one of the cities, not outside in the country, in the field, while he's in one of the cities, a leper approaches. That doesn't shock us like it should. It was forbidden by the law. Leviticus 13 and 14, some of the most disgusting non-pre-lunch reading you can ever do. There's all kinds of fluids and hair turning colors that you do not want to read at all. It is very particular about these lepers cannot approach a community, a society, a civilization. It's very strict. They have to remain outside. They cannot approach the city. And he was in one of the cities. There came a man full of leprosy. Dr. Luke, a physician, is telling us that he's in the later stages. Now, the biblical word for leprosy in both Testaments is really sort of a broad category, if I may be so bold, 
for all sorts of infectious skin maladies. I'm not going to get into it. It's probably most similar to what we have today is Hansen's disease. It's horrific, it's hideous, it's heinous, and it's contagious. Let me just tell you a little bit about leprosy because you kind of have to understand the enormity of this to understand what Jesus does in this vignette. By the way, there's only one leprosarium in all of America to this day. It's in Carville, Louisiana. I don't invite you to vacation there. Kind of ick. There's only one because it's such a terrible, terrible thing. By law, if you contract leprosy to this day, you have to be sent to Carville, Louisiana. Leprosy is this malady that attacks the nervous system and a whole lot of other things, but principally it attacks the nervous system so that sensitivity in the nerves goes away. You can no longer detect, discern, feel anything. And it's an interesting thing the way God makes our bodies. When we can't discern sensation in our extremities, they begin to withdraw. And so the fingers retreat back into the hands. The toes retreat back into the feet. The nose retreats back into the head. And they are a grotesque thing. They can't walk right. They can't work at all. They, their, their mouths and their faces become sallow until finally all of that withdrawal of tissue affects even the internal organs and they die of blood poisoning. It's a horrible, horrible thing. This guy comes into a city <laughs> Remember Peter on the boat? Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. This guy is absolutely ceremonially, societally, physically unclean. And he comes to Jesus and he prostrates himself before Jesus. Now let me explain why that's such a big deal. You can't be in the cities if you're a leper. You have to cover your face and you have to shout, unclean, unclean, everywhere you go. And if someone doesn't just like the sight of you from a distance, you are perfectly authorized to throw rocks at the leper to make him go away. You could stone him if he was in your path because they are such a wretched piece of society. This guy comes into the city and he falls on his face. He's planting himself. I'm not going to move. And so he's saying, I am here. Here's where I die. Because no one's going to grab him to move him. They can't, but they will throw rocks at him till he's dead just to rid themselves of his wretched presence. And he calls out, you can make me not just better, no, you can make me clean. Now, how does this leper who lives outside the camp, how does he know that Jesus can heal leprosy? For that, you have to remember two to three weeks ago, Jesus is in Nazareth and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he says, the leper shall be cleansed. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. In fact, in another gospel, as soon as Jesus says that, John the Baptist's messengers come and they say, hey, your cousin John's in prison in what is today Jordan. Are you the one we should expect or is there somebody else? And Jesus says, you tell John the lepers are healed. John knows because of that he's not getting out because he didn't continue the sentence. It said the captives will be set free. But word of this man, Jesus, saying the lepers will be healed, apparently went off like wildfire. And people began to cling to that most crucial thing, hope. This leper hears that Jesus is in Capernaum or thereabouts. Not only did it do all those things to you physically, it also did these things to you socially. You could not be around any other person. You were ceremonially unclean. You could not go to temple and offer sin offerings whatsoever. And so in the eyes of God and the law and Moses and the temple, you were condemned. And they believed it was because of your sin. You couldn't go to temple. You couldn't be cleansed before God. You could have no social interaction whatsoever. I want you to think you could never, ever touch your spouse again. 
You could never feel the contact of your children again. Even if they somehow did touch you, you couldn't feel it. And this man prostrates himself and says, you can make me clean. He doesn't wonder if Jesus can. He just wonders if Jesus will. You ever been there? I have. Jesus amazingly, in the Greek, he gives two word response, willing, cleansed. That's it. But not only that, Luke does something amazing. Dr. Luke says that Jesus stretches out his hand and it says he touched him. No, he hopped to Jesus grabbed him. Don't you need Jesus to grab you like this? He grabs him, he seizes him, and he says, willing, cleansed. And immediately, that dude hadn't felt anything in years and years. But he felt that, that warmth of immediately, everything is restored. The look on the face of this Jesus. And immediately, he wasn't just starting to feel better. No, he was cleansed. And we have to know that about the work of our Jesus. Listen to what Jesus does here. It's fantastic. Jesus stretched out his hand, verse 12, and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. This is impossible. This cannot happen. It's a condition that infects and works its way through the entirety of the human being. Verse 13, or 14, sorry. And Jesus charged him to tell no one. Why? Why wouldn't you want to like, hey, everybody, uh, I can, you know, cure leprosy. You might want to tell us. No, no, no. Jesus is still about preserving the messianic secret. He doesn't want them to seize him and try to make him king before his time. He has to go to the cross before he can get the crown. Tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. What in the world, Jesus? Why? Why are we messing around with this old system? Jesus is doing a thing. He's grabbing the Old Testament age and he's grabbing the new covenant fulfillment and he's putting them together in himself. New cleansed leper. I want you to go find a priest, probably in Capernaum, because they were dispersed all over Israel. Find a priest and show him that you are clean. And the priest's going to say this. Because they'd never seen a cleansed leper. In all of your Bible, there are only two people that ever get cleaned from leprosy. Only two ever. One is Miriam, the sister of Moses. It was just a very quick condition that she had because she was making fun of Moses' Ethiopian wife. Not a good idea. And number two is Naaman, the Syrian Gentile general who washes in the Jordan. Those are the only two people that you'll ever see in Scripture that are cleared of leprosy. And so this guy goes to the priest and says, oh, by the way, remember me? I'm Larry the leper. Used to have leprosy. I'm clean as a whistle now. What do I do? And the priest goes, I, I have no idea. This has never happened before. That's what Jesus wants. He wants to send a ripple through the priesthood. Now go to temple and make the appropriate offering. So they have to go to the temple, this priest and this leper, and they have to like blow the dust off the scrolls. How do you, what do you do for a cleanse? We haven't had to do that in a thousand years. We have no idea. You know what the offering for a cleansed leper is? For that, you have to look in Leviticus 14. If a leper is judged clean, you take two innocent white spotless doves. One of them, you take its head, you break it back, 
you cut its throat, and you drain the blood into a bowl, a bowl that also has running water going through it. And then you take a piece of hyssop, it's a little strawy branch that grows out of the temple wall, and you dip that hyssop into that mixture of blood and water. And you sprinkle it on the other dove. And then you release it. Something innocent died for the guilty so that the guilty could now be innocent and fly away, covered in the blood and the water of the innocent. And then you took a lamb, a male lamb, spotless and perfect, and you burned it every single bit because of the guilt and the shame and the uncleanliness. You burned it all on the altar so that you could go free. And then you who had been declared clean, found guilty, found unclean. You had to shave every hair on your body, eyebrows too, all of it. Because you were clean and new, like a newborn. You were slick and brand new, born again. This is what Jesus wants them to see in the temple. Oh, it's happening. It's pulsing. It's pulsating out of Galilee. Here it comes. Jesus wants them to see this. Present yourself because unclean Larry the leper, you're not just healed. As good as that is, no, no, no. You are ceremonially, watch this, legally cleansed. Because of what Jesus has done, you're not just well. In the eyes of the law of Moses, you are righteous. Because of what Jesus did. In the eyes of the law of Moses, not just in the, of our constitution. No, no, no. In the eyes of the law of Moses, you are legally righteous because of what Jesus has done. It's an amazing passage that Luke gives us here. By the way, Leviticus in 13 and 14, I should mention, very disgusting passage. How about hair turning yellow and open the soils and eruptions? It's foul. But both Luke, I'm sorry, Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14 open with the text saying, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, <laughs> Do you know who that is? That's a pre incarnate second member of the Godhead Trinity, Christ, telling Moses and Aaron, Hey, this is what I want you to set up knowing full well that in 1,000, 1,500 years or so, this was going to be the work of Messiah come into the world. I want there to be a proof, Jesus says to this man. But now even more, verse 15. The report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered. You think? Because this is what he can do. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he neglected, yea, verily, to set up the aforementioned TikTok and the Instagram and the face brag. No, verily, he did not capitalize on his own fame. He withdrew to desolate places to pray. This is what I need my Jesus to do. So what do we take away from this wonderful narrative passage about the early ministry of Jesus? What do we learn? Combining that with who we are as a church and what we're all about here, let me give you four very quick implications. Number one goes like this discipleship begins with the word of God. I hear this from time to time. Well, we got to go do this. We got to go do service projects. We got to do this. We gotta... Awesome in time. But it begins with the word of God. 
Yes, Jesus performed some signs and some wonders, but always to authenticate and to authorize the word of God. Peter had heard the word of God in synagogue. He had seen the work of God at his mother-in-law's house, and he's listening to the preaching on the seashore. He's listening to the teaching in his boat. Discipleship begins with the word of God. I hear people say all the time, if God would just do a miracle, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Virtually nobody who sees a miracle just apart from the teaching of, of the word of God, none of them are actually believers. That doesn't do it. It begins with the word of God. Peter's our model in a lot of ways. He heard Jesus in the synagogue. He watched what happened with his mother-in-law. Not that she was unclean. I'm just saying she had a fever. Sometimes that happens. Then Peter heard Jesus teaching the word of God, and that is what prepared him to hear the voice of Jesus, call him to follow Jesus. We have to introduce people to Jesus through the words of God. We cannot know Christ apart from his word. I cannot emphasize that enough. Number two, discipleship builds on the work of Jesus. Not me, not our church vision statement, not anybody else. It is about the work of Jesus. I should point out the only accurate way to introduce people to Jesus is to walk them through the word of God. What we don't mean where you just sort of try to get lucky and you open your Bible and go, oh, good, Second Chronicles. Oh, and there were 144 dudes in Zebulun. Eh, that's actually kind of cool. That's a harder place to start. I mean, you actually use the word of God to communicate about the work of God. The Old Testament builds this tension that Messiah would have to do something. And the New Testament fleshes that out with the advent of Jesus. He's done a thing. The Christ event has occurred. He is the beginning of the end of history. Y'all, 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 the gospel writers will say, it's happened. And it's happening in our lives. Jesus didn't merely perform signs and wonders, though he certainly did that. He actually became the sacrifice for sin so that the unrighteous and the guilty could actually become the righteousness of God. That is his work, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us. Number three, priests point people to the sacrifice. All this, all that, look what Jesus did. In a word, substitution. In a word, substitution. Our role as priests is not to wear funny hats and cool collars. It's to talk about the finished work of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I want you to go uh, present yourself to the priest and then go to temple because I want them to point you to the sacrifice and I want other people to understand what's happened with the sacrifice, why it is so central, why it is so significant. We begin with the word of God and we discuss and disclose the work of God. We explain how this good man was also God and innocent in every one of his thoughts, his words, and his deeds, and that he became, in a sense, the dove that was diseased with our leprosy so that we could fly and be free. We explain to people how this man, who was actually the walking around righteousness of God, now declares us equally righteous because of his standing in relationship to the Father. We explain how we are all desperate for this sacrifice and that it's available now even for people like you and me that have already believed. That's the gospel echo as it rings forward. See, Jesus redeems. Jesus doesn't tell Peter, no, Peter, you're good. Just come on. No, Peter, you are a sinner. But I will have died for you as well. And you're going to go and do likewise. See, Jesus redeems. And I can't emphasize how important that is because our fourth and final and concluding point goes like this. We all had leprosy. <laughs> 
If you live with the illusion that you were pretty good and Jesus gave you a boost, you're misunderstanding. Leprosy is always a picture of sin in our Bible, how it cuts us off from life in God. It cuts us off from life with one another. It cuts us off from being able to accurately synthesize and sensitize what's going on around us. It makes us dumb and dead until things sometimes quite literally just fall off. We all had leprosy. I'm talking about the default leprous condition that all of us enter into this world with that cuts us off from true feeling and sensing, that destroys relationships and communities and makes us unclean before a holy God. What the earthly ministry of Jesus shows us is what Jesus is actually like. The leper knew that Jesus could heal him. He wondered if Jesus would. And I wonder if you've ever been there. Maybe you're here this morning somehow on one of our two floors or watching remotely and you wonder, I know that Jesus can, but I wonder if he will. This text is a scream off the page. I will, I will, I have, be cleansed. Now, that doesn't mean he's gonna solve all your financial problems, all your relational woes. No, I'm talking about something way more central and core and critical and significant. Your leprous separation from life itself. The things we deal with don't disappear immediately like the guy in our text, but that's the way we are to think of our struggles when we think and we pray. God, that was a part of my leprous path. Would you make it clean? Can, done. God, that's a part of my struggle with this particular area of my thought life. Can you make this clean? Can, done. Do you pray like that? We must. Can you cleanse me from this ugly? Can, done. Now let's go be fishers of men. The blood and the water of the innocent has been sprinkled on me, the guilty, so that I can fly and be free. The lamb that was slain was consumed completely for my guilt and shame so that I can live freely in joy. See, Jesus redeems. And that's very good news. That's the gospel. So before we pray, let me just ask if there's anyone in this room, on this floor, or downstairs, or listening remotely, and you still have a sense that there's leprosy, there is death, there's desensitization, there's separation. Can Jesus cleanse you? Yes, done. Just the fact that you're wondering and wanting is evidence that the Spirit of God is working in your life. I invite you to believe. And when I say believe, I don't mean necessarily intellectually agree with. I mean to place all of your weight squarely and solely on the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. And he lives to make intercession for us because of his substitution. I invite you to believe. For the rest of us, perhaps you've been a believer since right after Daniel was rescued out of the lion's den. Congratulations. But you have forgotten the glory of the gospel that every single day this Jesus can and has and will make you clean. I invite you to cling to that cleansing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We pray, God, that you would continue to give us the clinging and the clang of the gospel ringing forth in our hearts and souls and minds. Father, if there is anyone in the hearing of my voice, would you use your word and your spirit to lead them into a saving knowledge of your son? that they would step out of death and separation into life and community. 
for the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us with this passage that Jesus has come. He is the God-man. He is the last Adam who redeems and recapitulates. May we love him ever increasingly more and more. Thank you, Father, for this time. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.